Welcome to the GenesisChurch.tv podcast with Scott Hunter. I'm your host, lead pastor of Genesis, Scott Hunter. Today is a rebroadcast of week six finale of our message series, Unshaken, the book of Daniel. I pray this brings you hope and encouragement as we encounter and wage against similar battles that Daniel faced. Thanks for tuning in. In the spring of 1992, the capital city of of Bosnia was besieged by the Yugoslav People's Army. And on May 27th, there was uh, an an incident where innocent civilians were uh, standing on a bread line, and they were bombshelled. And uh, it exploded, and the explosion killed 22 people. Uh, It left a crater in the center of Sarajevo, and moments after the blast, there was a man named Vedran Smolyovic. So this man, he instinctively ran to the scene, uh, but he didn't know what to do. So he wasn't a firefighter, he wasn't a soldier, he wasn't a medic. He was the chief cellist in the Sarajevo Opera. So what did he do? He did the best with what he had, with what talent and what gifting the Lord had put in his hand, and he used what God gifted him to do. The very next day, on May 28th, he grabbed his cello, put on his tux, and he climbed down into the middle of the crater, and he sat in a scorched chair and started to play for 22 days straight, one day for every single life that was lost of those victims. And this man played in the craters, and he played in the cemeteries, and he played in the rubble of bombed-out buildings for the rest of the war. Why? Why would you put your life at risk? And what difference is that actually going to make? Well, in the words of Vedron, he said, my weapon is my cello. Seven weeks ago, we began this series called Unshaken. And unshaken means that we are confronting brutal facts of our culture, of our world, but we're facing them with unwavering faith. And that makes us different kind of people. See, unshaken means we're refusing to compromise our convictions, even if we end up in a fiery furnace or put into a lion's den. It's the moral courage to speak truth to power. And today I'm going to add something to the mix. I believe that unshaken means climbing into the craters left by sin and suffering and turning your gift into a weapon of faith, hope, and love. In 606 BC, the city of Jerusalem was besieged by King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire, and a teenager named Daniel was exiled. He was taken from his home, marched 900 miles away to Babylon, and left there for the rest of his life as an exile. So the odds are all stacked up against Daniel to be great at anything, right? But God was for him. And when God is, <laughs> when God is for you, who or what could possibly be against you? See, the Babylonians, they try to rename him to Belteshazzar, meaning slave of one of their gods. They tried to tame him. Administrations came and they went. Nations would rise and they fell. But you look at the book of Daniel, at the end of the book of Daniel, the last man standing is Daniel. He gets the last laugh. He has the last dance. How? How in the world does a prisoner of war who survived a lion's den climb out of that pit, that crater, and get on a political ladder that puts him all the way at the top? Here's my take. Even when his life was turned upside down, even when he found himself in a crater, 
Daniel never lost faith in the end of the story because the story was not his that he was writing. It was the Lord's. See, decade after decade, Daniel put on his own tux and he climbed to that crater of exile and he had the holy audacity to play his cello. And you think, if I've lost my mind, you're like, Daniel didn't have a tux or a cello, right? What are you talking about? I'm saying this, and some of you need to hear me, because you need to do the same. Daniel took what was put in his hands, and he used it for the glory of God. No matter what the crater looked like. In Daniel chapter 1, it was a countercultural conviction that Daniel refused to compromise. In Daniel chapter 2, his weapon was a prophetic imagination. In Daniel 3, it was all about integrity. In Daniel 4, it was the gift of the Spirit before the gift of the Spirit was even penned, but it was all over Daniel. And what he lived out and how he lived out his life was seen by men and changed the entire situation in the entire world. In Daniel chapter 5, he had the moral courage to speak truth to power. In Daniel 6, he had the faith to shut the mouths of the lions. In Daniel 7, it was about his humility. In Daniel 8, it was about his testimony. In Daniel 9, it was about kneeling three times a day and praying when they said, oh, you can't do that. In Daniel 10, his weapon was fasting and praying every single day for 21 days. In Daniel 11, his weapon was his vision. And today in Daniel 12, It's his long obedience headed in the same direction that matters, that makes what Daniel had put in his life, had taken what was in his hand and used for the glory of God so that God's truth might be revealed, that God's testimony might be spoken through his life. See, we live in a very different kind of age. We just do. It's very different, though not much of humanity has changed, right? All of us are born into this battlefield of, of... evil and good. You live in a fallen world, but it's, but it's a broken world. And I'm not telling you anything that you, you don't know, but our world is pretty broken right now. Like the COVID crisis keeps like rearing its ugly head, doesn't seem to go away, right? Pastor Stephanie is out today because she has COVID, right? And then you've got protests and vandalism against pro-life agencies this all past week and hurricane season starting up and you got pain and suffering in Ukraine because of an invasion that no one's even talking about anymore, yet the innocent remain under attack. We have mass shootings in schools and in streets against police officers. There's smash and grab that's going completely unpunished, and violence is like a new art. If you watch things that happen in Chicago, New York City, violence is at an all-time high, and no one's doing anything about it. We have inflation and a gas crisis and an energy crisis, a baby formula crisis, a border crisis that's just going to get worse. After this week, the Supreme Court struck down the holding of migrants in Mexico. So now it's, it's open season to move. And we have an identity crisis in America, and we are struggling with gender issues and gender equality in this nation. We are politically polarized from one end to the other. And I don't really care what you land on in the spectrum. I'm just saying you got this ongoing battle all the time, and we're heading into an election season, so it's not going to get pretty, and it's not going to get any better. The midterm elections... They start next week in our state. So hear me. You are born for such a time as this. Your light, your life, your voice, your integrity, 
your care, your compassion, your genuine authenticness matters. It's easy, guys, just to stand around and stare at a bombed-out crater. It's easy to point to the problem and say, well, well, how did that get there? Or, or who's to blame for this? Because people nowadays see a problem and we all just want to point fingers. But it's so much harder to stand at the edge and say something's got to be done about this. Why not me? Why not now? Why not find a solution? Why not care to try? In Ezekiel 22, the prophet Ezekiel, he's challenging the Jewish people who are in exile to Babylon. You're stuck here, so do something with this. Stand in the gap. If it is not you, then who's going to do it? Who's going to raise up our kids to know God in this environment that is a countercultural phenomenon to be a Jew in a place where you are not allowed to worship the one true God because we're all told to bow to this statue that looks like the king. They climb into the crater of sin, but by climbing into it, those craters of injustice, the crater left by cancel culture, the crater that whatever you face in your life right now, you're playing a pivotal role in it. Why? Because you are an agent of change, just like Daniel, you are now. And as our world gets darker, I'm telling you, you are an agent of the final events in God's divine plan on this earth. You are here for such a time as this. Don't discount what I'm saying to you today. But each one of us have a weapon. And it's not physically tangible. But it has the power <laughs> to demolish strongholds. And it's called prayer. And I'm talking about you and every one of you have a role to play here today. To pray, to speak, to challenge, to fix, to preach. Wherever you're at, wherever you go. So we're going to take on the last dance of Daniel, chapter 12. If you're ready for it, I don't care because it's starting. So pull into Daniel chapter 12 with me. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to take some eschatology today, and um, the Lord's about to blow all your minds. All right, in Daniel chapter 1, at the time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happen from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. So this reference that Daniel's talking about in this end-time scenario, this vision of which he is seeing, it's the archangel Michael. And it is a cue and it is a clue to help us kind of put together this puzzle of what we call the end times, right? So we're going to go there this weekend, so if you want to jot down notes, it's a really good day to do that. Um, pull out Daniel and highlight and write some things in the Bible. I'm going to give you a bunch of things that you can correlate and relate to specific scripture, and we're going to jump kind of all over the place, and I'm going to put the whole story together for you on what it looks like right before the Lord splits the sky. So Daniel points to this far distant future at this moment. Okay? And it's the archangel that we see 
that goes to Mary and tells Mary that, hey, you're going to have a baby boy. That guy, right? So it's all going to happen, and it's going to arise during a time of distress. Everybody say distress. We call that the tribulation. Anybody ever heard of that? Raise your hand if you heard of the word trib or tribulation, right? So more on that in a minute. So we're going to look at Revelation a lot today, too. Revelation chapter 12, a battle breaks out in the heavenlies between good and evil, between the angel and the fallen angels, the demons. And so now the heavenly angels are being led by Michael, and the fallen angels, Scripture says, are being led by the dragon himself. Another name for it in Revelation 12, 9 is the old serpent, who we call Satan. By the way, it's in the same very chapter where that guy is called the accuser of the brother and the sisters, the ones who go before God and accuse us every day before him. Night and day, it says. It says also in that same verse that he is the one who leads the entire world astray. So be careful what voice that you're listening to. So I'm going to say a lot of things today that might sound kind of like super mystical, and you're like, well, that sounds weird and mysterious. And, and, and that's okay. And, and it's going to be kind of hard to um, maybe break it down to where everything makes exact sense. And I'm going to tell you why. When you're talking about the things that haven't happened yet, um, when you're talking about supernatural phenomena, you don't always have the perfect words for it. Uh, you don't always have the greatest categories for it. Uh, you don't always know how to describe it. Can you imagine what John the Revelator was seeing, or Daniel, or Paul, when he wrote First Thessalonians? Like, do we have a clue what, they, like, they've never seen a helicopter, a plane, a bomb, not, and yet they're describing the entire future to us. So when you read this, Daniel struggled to describe it, right? John the Apostle struggled to describe it, so I'm going to do my best to help you interpret it. And so what I know for this is certain, though, that the existence of evil is getting less and less deniable and more and more obvious in our age. Like, just watch the news. You can tell what is ghastly horrible, gunning down little kids in a school. It becomes very obvious that evil is in this world, right? And so I think the enemy is showing his cards, now, here's some good news. In the end, that dragon that we read about in verse 11, we triumph over him. You know how? Revelation 12, 11 says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Listen, testimony is prophecy. If God did it, God will do it again. Testimony is one of the most significant weapons in your arsenal as a believer. Your voice, your story matters. What you say, what you've been through matters and changes per people's lives one person at a time. See, your testimony, see, <laughs> it's not yours, it's on loan. It's the Lord's, it's actually God's. And so your testimony, what you've been through and the fabric of how you have been woven together for every experience, good, bad, and the ones in between are all yours, but there's a stewardship dimension to it that it's really God's, and all we are supposed to do is care for it. We are to share our testimony, and it's essentially loaning your faith out to someone who has no faith. Why? Romans 10, 14 through 15 says this. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? They may have heard the name Jesus, but it's probably been put into a slur how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's, that's why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers 
who bring good news. See, sometimes sharing means telling what you've been through. And, and, and some of those testimonies are of sin, and some are just suffering, and some are just craters that you've fallen into, you've been shoved into, that you walked into deliberately. But it's how we walked out of them by the grace of God that matters. So this week, I'm telling you, as sure as I am sitting here today, the Lord is going to put a person in your path this week, and you're going to get this weird urge to say, I need to tell you my story. What will you do with that? Daniel 12.2 says, The multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. When you read this, you have to remember that this is written the 6th century B.C., before Christ, not B.C.E., not before common era. That's garbage. Jesus is the one that split dates in the history's earth. They might have changed B.C.E. to cover up before Christ, but it's still the exact same time when Jesus Christ came on the scene, Anno Domini, A.D., in the year of our Lord. And so this prophecy predates that Jesus who split all of time, even showing up. Before God came down in the incarnation and wrapped himself in human flesh as the Messiah, as the Christ. And Daniel is not even looking to Christmas, but he's looking to when after the moment Jesus Christ has died and rose again and comes back for his people. He's looking at the second coming of Christ before the first coming of Christ ever showed up. Let that blow your mind. And I look at this, and like, it's so wild if you think about it. I'm like, how do you, de- how do you describe this stuff? I'm, I'm a little excited today. I'm a theological nerd. I love, I love to read. I love to study. And every single time that the Word of God comes alive, it comes alive in me, and I'm just going to have to put the chair away. So everybody on the camera, if I move a little bit, I'm sorry. This is why I sit in the chair. One, I have a gimpy leg. But two, it's because they're like, Scott, you're like a squirrel, and we can't follow you. That's why we built this platform, so I'm only allowed to go this far and this far. Because before, I'd be like running, and people would be like, it's like walking a tennis match. You're Wimbledon on stage. And I just gave myself whiplash. All right. See? Focus. The chair. It helps. All right. So when you read about Daniel, you've got to understand the things that he says, it all lines up with Revelation. There is nothing contradictory to one book in 1 Thessalonians, Revelation, uh, there's stuff in Ezekiel, and there's things in Isaiah. Like, the, all those things that are prophecy, they, they don't contradict themselves. They don't contradict each other. And so here's this moment where Daniel lines up with Revelation 19, and it says in the Scripture about a loud shout, a blast from heaven. And the Apostle John sees heaven open up in this moment. Revelation 19, 11, 13 says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his heads are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. All of this is the same imagery that we see in the book of Daniel. 
Now Paul has this moment, and the Lord opens up his eyes, and he shows him this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. He says, For the Lord himself will come down out of heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Can you imagine those three sounds all of a sudden splitting the sky and blowing out all the windows and all the buildings and all the earth? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Everyone pees their pants. And then after that, those I'm telling you, when Jesus got up out of the ground on Resurrection Day, bodies were popping out of the graves. Go read your scriptures, because when Jesus Christ comes back, guess what? You can't hold anyone down. At that moment, those who are still alive are going to be snatched up, caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the middle of the air. Just floating, having a good old time. It's like reverse skydiving. And I love this. And we will be with the Lord forever. Zero doubt. Zero worries. Zero cell phones. <laughs> now that phrase here, caught up, is where we get the word rapture. You're not going to find the word rapture anywhere in Scripture. You're going to hear caught up. In this moment, it's when Christ returns for his church, for his bride, you, me, I'm the hairiest bride ever. Listen, now theologians, they fall into three camps. You're going to hear pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. All right? Now I have a little bit take, a different take on this uh, in the eschatological timeline, and I'm going to explain why. So before I do, let me just say this. I'm not omniscient, right? I know you're all so shocked, right? Um, so don't hold your breath for me having 100% accuracy, but I'm telling you, this is a personal conviction, and as I study Scripture more and more, I feel like I owe this to you as a pastor to open up your eyes and just point back to the Word. So here it goes. You got the church age, right? So the church age is where it, it begins on the day of Pentecost. So all the apostles and anyone who was the follower of Christ that was in that upper room, all baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jen, you can flip the air back on. It's turning from like freezing frigid air to hotter than where Satan is going to be cast forever and ever. All right. So Spirit of God falls. It empowers them to go into all the earth, right? That was what they were told to do. The church begins to spread, begins to grow. All the world begins to hear about Jesus because the disciples disperse. So that is is what we call the church age. Now, we don't know how long that lasts, but the church age is what ushers in the eschaton, right? So the, the eschaton is the end times. So you're living in it. You always have been. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry. Go to church more often. So Jesus gives us some science, though, that will precede his second coming. He's going to say, these are the natural things that I have put into order that are going to show up. So pay attention. It, it's in the Olivet Discourse. You're going to read this in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus, the reason why it's called that, because he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. It's real fancy, right? He's saying, I'm coming back for you someday. Here's what he says will show up before he returns. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Check. There's going to be an increase in the frequency and intensity of natural disasters. Double check. There will be dissensions and divisions. Double check discount. Right? 
So this is where I want to kind of like pop the periscope, right? I just want to open it up, give you a little bit of reality check. So I'm not going to minimize the changes that we're facing right now as a nation. I do believe things are, are it feels like things are unraveling. But it is also critical to understand history and the full scope of history, church history, American history. Let me just throw this at you. If you look back 100 plus years ago, it was 1918, and the world was grieving 20 million casualties in the war to end all wars, World War I. In 1919, right afterwards, the Spanish flu broke out and killed 70 million people. 1921, you got the Tulsa Massacre, which historians say is the most, it's the worst incident in all of racial violence in the history of the earth. All of that happened. What do you think those people thought? The world is ending, that this is it. So who actually knows? Because then there was World War II, right? And you have like Vietnam and you have 9-11. So who actually knows? Only the Father. All right, so let me double back to the end of the, the, the church age. So we're at this place, things get crazy, and we know that we're, we're actually living in the reality of daily life, uh, of just doing life. And, but there's going to be a point where you're going to see a turn, and like there's this weird, unique part of history, period of history, of tremendous trial and distress, Scripture says, and it's called the tribulation. And at some point, Jesus is going to rapture his church. The question is, when, right? I know I have an idea chronologically, but nobody knows the hour, nobody knows the day, not even Jesus or the Holy Spirit. How that works perplexes me. But God the Father is the only one who knows when he's going to send his son back. That's how magnanimous your God is, that he can like be three yet one, yet still only let part of the brain understand. <laughs> let that make your brain melt and run out your ears, right? But I have a pretty good sense, though, of where this happens biblically, so I want to take you there. I think the rapture happens between Revelation uh, 7, and, and it's in between the 6th and the 7th seal. Now, when I say seal, that's like opening an envelope seal. It's not the circus animal, okay? So all my teenagers, go with me there. All right. Now, you've got three kinds of judgments that are going to happen during the tribulation. The first one, you got the seven seals, okay? And then you have the seven trumpets, and then you have the seven bowls. The big uh-ohs, the no-nos, this is going to be horrible. And when they come, they will come in that sequence, okay? Seals, trumpets, bowls. And then I'm suggesting, though, that the rapture happens in the first part of all of this, between the sixth and the seventh seal. The first set of judgments, it's the lightest, okay? And, and it's an indicator that the trumpets and the bowls, the wrath of God... They're coming quickly. So here's what happens when the sixth seal is broken. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hand as a sign of victory. That's what that means. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the elders asked the question in verse 13. He says, who are these people clothed in, in the long white robes, and where did they come from? In other words, how in the world did they get here? And the answer comes in verse 14, Revelation 7. 
These are they who have come out of great tribulation. And suddenly, this multitude appears in heaven. And the angels, saints, they don't know how they got there. But the key is, backing up the bus here, is Revelation 6.17. For the great day of wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The first six seals are most likely these intensified natural disasters. And then you see verse 17 says, and then, then the great day of wrath. So it's almost like God just kind of like flips the script. So he goes from this moment of, of judgment and you feel all the pain of the earth groaning and then it flips where evil's going to meet its match. And I think that the rapture of God's church is going to happen before God pours out his wrath on injustice and unrighteousness. Why? Because we are the righteous ones covered by the blood of the Lamb. But everybody's going to get a moment to repent. Do you understand? In Second Peter, Peter says this to us in verse 9 of chapter 3. He says, The Lord is not slow to do what he has promised, as some think. Instead, he's patient with you. See, there's a big difference between being slow to act and being patient and holding off. Why? Because he does not want anyone to be destroyed. Nobody. But he wants everybody to turn away from their sins. If you're sitting here today and you do not know the Lord, he's right now being patient with you and letting you hear this word that might transform your life. Choose Christ today. Because there's this interesting phrase after that some of these seals and trumpets and bowls, here's what it says in Revelation, even then they did not repent. There will still be people who will witness the craziness that happens, the things that look like they are kind of a, a, a throwback to the plagues that happened against Pharaoh when Moses said, let my people go, and he's like, nope, and God said, okay, well, I'll force you to. But this is what it said, many will be purified. People are going to even turn in those last moments when it's impossible. They said they will be made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. Long story short, I don't think the rapture happens pre, mid, or post. I think it happens pre-wrath. Because I don't think you're going to be judged for the sins that you're not judged for any longer. You're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so as I listen to this, if you hold a different timeline, it's fine. I'm not going to love you any less. Don't you love me any less either, right? But one way or the other, here's the deal. Sooner or later, Jesus Christ is going to rapture his church. And it's going to be this moment unlike anybody has ever seen, ever. So here's some epic things that I've seen on this earth. Let me just share a little bit about my life if you don't know me. I sang on the Disneyland California stage in fourth grade with Mickey and the entire Cincinnati Boy Choir and got to watch everybody like, it, it was awesome. It was an epic moment. Like it's burned and seared in my, uh, my mind. I traveled to America like with an, uh, this group in high school and then in college singing and acting and, and I went to this place one time. It was called Pikes Peak. It's in Colorado. It's it's the most amazing thing, and it was like 100 degrees in Denver, and then we get to the top of Pikes Peak, and it's snowing. And I walked across the Royal Gorge Bridge, 
which is the highest gorge between the big dips between two mountains and anywhere in the United States, and I thought I was going to die. I won international team talent, and I got to walk the field of the Indianapolis Colts to get my trophy. I lived in the Great Smoky Mountains during college, the most beautiful epic place on earth, I'm, I'm convinced, and I proposed to Tabitha in Chattanooga over all the city lights at Rock City. That's a pretty epic moment. And then we walked the pink beaches of Bermuda on our honeymoon. I climbed across the top of the Sydney Harbor Bridge. Scariest thing ever in my 20s. I lived on the same street in New York City. We would go down the street. We would stop and get Haagen-Dazs, my wife and I, because there was a Haagen-Dazs right next to my apartment. It's fantastic. We go to the end of the street, and at the end of my street is this thing they called the promenade, and there stood Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty, and I got to see her every day of my life standing in the Hudson with her beacon of freedom. Like, all of those things that are like so cool and so epic are going to pale, look meaningless in the light. Nothing will be compared to that epic moment where the dead and Christ are going to rise up out of the grave. And those that are alive are going to be snatched up and meet the Lord in the air. I'm telling you, it's going to blow the world's mind. They will not be able to explain it away. They will try, but people are going to know something just happened. So what does that make me do? It makes me pray two things a lot lately. One, Holy Spirit, come. Meaning I want him to pour out his anointing on you. You may not know who he is. You may not have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't care if you believe in it or not. It's real. I'm filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think I preach the way that I preach? It's like, there's an anointing that's like fire shut up in my bones. And it compels me to go and to speak. It compels me to go and stand at the edge of the crater and jump in both feet. I know I just scared all of you right then. But the gimpy leg is strong. I'm telling you, God's going to, he's going to pour out a spirit upon you and you're going to walk with an anointing. You're going to walk in a relationship with him deeper and louder and stronger than you ever have before in your entire life. And then the second thing I'm praying is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I think we've stopped looking for the skies to split. We get comfortable and we're thinking, well, that will just happen someday down the road. I'm praying that there's this amazing revival. And that we get to see it in our lifetime. And then God splits the skies and takes us home. Is there anything that you long for more than the second coming of Christ? If there is, maybe you need to do a priority and a reality check today. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do you long for his appearing to meet your Lord and your Savior in the air? Because that moment is going to be a real reality. So be ready. So I'm going to tackle more of Daniel 12, and I will walk you through what Revelation looks like in an upcoming series. We're going to do one called Split the Sky this year. Whole year is planned. But I'm going to leave you today with two thoughts. And it's simply this. From Daniel, take this away. Be ready 
Play the long game. Be ready. Play the long game. Be ready. God's going to come back. He's going to rapture his church. He's going to take those only who are his. See, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. The cross is the only way. I don't care what culture tells you. He's the way to God. He's the way to heaven. He's the way to eternal life. He's the way to freedom, but he's also the way to a life more abundant now and in the one to come. So don't lose your faith. For my saints, don't turn your back on Jesus. Get in a relationship with him today or take the time to foster the one that you have and make it the best that it possibly can be. Daniel lived a life of long obedience, doing the right thing, doing life with God, headed in the same direction, not veering to the right, not veering to the left, not making all these mess up pitfalls, walking through his own craters. He lived a life of obedience. That's the best kind of life to live. So that means, number two, you play the long game too. I play the long game too. That means we're praying the news. We filter everything through the God filter. We're thinking about that there's more to this than right now. There's more to life than just the present. There's a bigger picture because life matters beyond this experience. This is a blip. You have eternity to live for. Christ is king. He is going to reign forever and ever. What is your forever going to look like? I think we're kind of in this season where I feel like God is like shifting the atmosphere. I think he's shifting our mindset. We, we lived through this in the COVID time where it was, we, we felt more dependent on God. And I feel like it's kind of like sticking in us, those that were not pushing away or falling away, but that have ingrained themselves. It's, it's not just church on a Sunday, but it is church happening every day in our lives. It's not a religious experience. It is a relationship with God that's happening on the daily moment. Both Sunday and then your walk Monday through Saturday are imperative. Why? Because if we're not careful, we go to church, we check that box, we feel good about ourselves, and then we check out Monday through Friday, and that life is not going to get us where we need to go. I never want God to say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so what I want to do is challenge you to do daily church, okay? Make the most out of practicing your spiritual disciplines, prayer, meditation, reading, study, worship. Do it. The only ceiling on your intimacy with God the only ceiling on how close you can get to God is the amount of time that you are spending with him in spiritual daily disciplines. That's it. You want more of God? God says, I will give you the more that you want. Draw close to me, I will draw close to you. Promise. It's in James. See, Daniel modeled this three times a day. He knelt by that bed. He opened those windows and he prayed. He was a student of the word. He studied the word. Visions came to him while he was studying the word. He was grounded in God's word. And he was pumped about his faith. So I'm telling you to go get pumped about your faith. Get pumped enough to give it away. It's time to get a little bit radical, people. Get a little excited. Quit living 
life as the purpose of your whole life is just waiting to die. <laughs> Live an unshaken life. Do not lose faith at the end of the story. Why? Because God has got you. God has got this. There is nothing to fear. May his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This has been another podcast of GenesisChurch.tv with Scott Hunter, lead pastor of Genesis Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Tune in each Sunday at 929 or 1101 on YouTube, Vimeo, Facebook, and live.genesischurch.tv or visit us in person at 4070 Mission Road here in Tallahassee. Catch us for weekly messages and midweek interviews and encouragement here on the GenesisChurch.tv podcast.